Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital, focusing primarily on consumer-facing businesses. There's also more content and opportunities to get involved and meet others if you head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Matthias Metternich, one of the co-founders and CEO of Art of Sport. Art of Sport is a complete line of daily essential body and skincare products made for athletes. Some of the things we spoke about were his approach to building a world-class skincare business, how he partners with athletes, and his thoughts around fundraising and investing in CPG businesses. Without further ado, here's Matthias. Matthias, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So talk to me a little bit about the very beginning. What was the insight that led you to found Art of Sport? The insight was, um, you know, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, there are the uh, very occasional light bulb moments for, for businesses, but more often than not, there are a lot of contributing factors. And, you know, maybe there's post-rationalization that happens when you hear these stories out in the uh, startup landscape where I was running through an airport and that's when I realized I needed this billion dollar product. But inevitably, I think the reality is, is that a lifetime of learning and experiencing creates a lot of sort of uh, tacit knowledge of, of the world. And then insights emerge along the way. And if you can knit those together with an awesome team and a sort of a blazing desire to bring that idea to fruition, I think, you know, that can then yield the business. But there were two, I would say, contri- key contributing factors. The first one, I had grown up my whole life as an athlete and as an entrepreneur. And as an athlete, I, I sort of looked to brands like Nike. I looked to brands like Gatorade and Adidas, who all were quite emblematic of the sport meets culture brand world and, and really set the tone and inspired athletes everywhere to pursue their destiny. And their products would help you or enable you to do just that. And so as an athlete, I bought their shoes, uh, I bought their performance fabrics, uh, I brought their technical apparel. 
And then on the nutritional side as an athlete, I was always conscious of what I put in my body. And sometimes I'd make myself the, the, the shake from scratch. But other, other times I might buy a, a power bar where I would drink Gatorade or Powerade or body armor to hydrate. And so I felt on the consumable front that that was taken care of. But it dawned on me when my co-founder, Brian and I, Brian Lee, who, who also co- uh, founded um, LegalZoom, and then after that, he founded Honest Company, that there was really no one in the men's grooming space thinking of elevating the grooming category and what we put on our skins uh, every day from morning until night in the same way that the Nikes of this world or the Gatorades of this world had committed themselves to doing that for their respective categories. And it was the convergence of that lifelong experience plus the uh, initial kind of insight and then the investigation that yielded Art of Sport and why we believe we have a you know very clear differentiation in the market and a very big opportunity to go after and, and frankly defined for the category that has been somewhat neglected over the last decade or so. No, I appreciate that. So how did you approach, first of all, product? Did you have a background when it came to building CPG products or was this your first go? I know this is like the fifth or so company that you've started and just wanted to know how you approached building a superior product from day one. Yeah. So there's, if you're asking me, have you ever poured a stick of deodorant in your life? I would have told you, no, I've never, I've never attempted that in my kitchen or otherwise. But if you ask me, have you built products for consumers before? I would say yes, many times. And I've built a lot of different types of products, both digital and physical and, you know, the gamut also experiential. And I, and I think the methodology tends to be one and the same. And the methodology is looking at the landscape. It's looking first and foremost really at the consumer and what their lives are, what their aspirations are, what their needs are, and then designing with that sort of human-centric methodology at the core of the innovation process. And then from there, you start to form a clear picture of the products and the services that are going to be most beneficial to that core consumer. In our case, we were looking at someone who, irrespective of age, frankly, initially, but was someone who would be taking multiple showers a day because they would be working out and exercising and sweating. They would therefore then have dry skin as a result or problematic areas. They might experience chafing. They might experience sunburn. They might experience dry scalp and dandruff. They might experience acne. They might not smell the best. So we looked at those the life cycle of the athlete. And in so doing, we also ended up looking at the life cycle of most consumers. And, you know, it it harkens back to, I think, Bill Bowerman's statement at Nike, where he said, if you have a body, you're an athlete. I think that was philosophically always how we how we viewed it. And so with that, we, we started to narrow in on daily products that consumers apply multiple times a day uh, for the for their lifetimes. And we narrowed in on products that were deodorants, soaps and body washes and shampoos and lotions. And over time, we, we sort of stretched into a few other products to really complete that picture. In fact, when we launched, we also launched with a sunscreen and a pain cream. And by doing that, we had a platform that we felt addressed morning until night on and off the field, performing at your peak and then recovering from it. And you could use our product to cross that lifetime of commitment to your sport and lifetime to pursuing your full potential. So that's what we decided to launch with. And then, of course, the, the hard work started, which was how do you formulate those? How do you create clear differentiation in the market? What lane do you want to inhabit? And that was the, you know, the next sequence of, of steps that we had to take to bring our vision to, to fruition. 
So it seems like in terms of your approach, you looked at the market, you identified what is missing from the market, especially for maybe as your initial market, the athlete, if that's fair to say, and what additional products could best serve that specific category that haven't been there yet and almost back channeled it into a brand. Is that kind of fair to say? No, I think it was a case of saying, One, we knew that no one had addressed application. So people had addressed apparel, people had addressed consumables, no one had addressed application. And so we knew what those daily products were. And we knew, we knew what the most, you know, the the go-to products for men looked like. And then what we did was, in addition to that, we brought athletes into that innovation process very early on. And so true to the Nikes of this world and the Adidas that started on the field with athletes where they were doing research and development with them to get their feedback incorporate that feedback into products. We did that process. And then, you know, the question becomes, what message do you want to sculpt? And what kind of brand presence do you want to have? Do you want to be a technical product that's highly technical and really only focused on hardcore athletes? Or do you want to be something that's inspiring and aspirational and has a message that's modern and fresh and exciting and cool? And we obviously steered toward the latter because we felt that that would have the greatest impact in bringing our products and educating consumers and bringing our products to the masses. And so in some ways, it wasn't, I don't think, a reverse process into the brand we wanted to build as much as it was a case of starting with a really central need and then in tandem in tandem with that, wanting to manifest our vision in the fullest possible way and then sort of putting a language alongside it, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, thank you for that. It's very fascinating just how you thought about your brand positioning and making sure that when you were building your brand, being conscientious of reaching a broad market rather than building something specifically technical for the high performance athlete right? No, that makes a ton of sense. Now, what was your, I guess, go-to market strategy? I know you started online as a DMVB, as many brands do, since it's very tough from day one to get into retail, right? But, you know, the DC channel has become, you know, it's very affordable now to launch a brand, which is why there's now abundance of brands that one can find online. How did you think about your go-to market strategy in that regard and brand differentiation in terms of since getting through the noise now more than ever is really, really tough? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, the key is to have a product that is differentiated in the landscape so that it's not a me too, or it's not just an incremental improvement. So I think that that comes to bear when you think about uh, bringing the brand and the, and the product of value to a mass market. So we live, we inhabit a very clear lane. We inhabit a better for you formula standard. So we have a clean formula that's designated clean by you know the likes of Target who have a very sort of a strong opinion about what clean means. So that definition is very important to us, but we don't believe that you should sacrifice performance in order to have clean formulas. And so we feel, you know, particularly products you apply to your skin, you expect them to last and you expect them to perform. So we wanted to ensure that we also captured that high performance formula construct and uh, product proposition. And so that's the lane we inhabit. And there are very few players who are really doing that in that lane. And we knew as a result, if we could create those products 
products to that high of a quality and that high of a standard and price them at a very accessible price point, that by that definition, you are going to have to think of the channels and distribution strategy that would bring your products to the largest possible audience, because otherwise you would be a very high-end premium product selling online only, and you might have a very different trajectory than what we've had. And our goal has always been to elevate the whole category, and we have to take into account the sort of the way that that category behaves. And so the category is 95 to 99% still offline. Yes, there are some trends showing that, that that products are being purchased online more and more. There might be more significantly more discovery happening online. But really, when it comes to the fundamentals of where people shop for these uh, products day in and day out, we always knew that retail was going to be a very important part of that equation. And so as a result of taking that into account early, we then also were able to design and build a company that works well in all channels versus one that starts online only, is highly designed and tuned for that, you know, a team that's primarily D2C centric, a supply chain that's primarily D2C centric with fulfillment out of maybe one 3PL, you know, brand and marketing spend that's primarily dedicated to paid online and social. And, you know, that becomes really the DNA of your business if that's your focus. For us, we were always cognizant of the experiences that we would need to, to supplement the team with over time as we phased our way into the market. And so, yes, we launched online only. We launched on artisport.com. We provided subscriptions there for people who were really excited and and understood what the proposition offered. And you could build your own kits and your own bundles and have those delivered at whatever frequency you wanted. We also somewhat counterintuitively launched on Amazon. Counterintuitive in the sense that most of the D2C and the Valley folks at the time anyway, are, are it's changing a little now, but we're very adamant about you have to have your web presence only and no other channel and somehow Amazon will cannibalize or dilute that. That hasn't proven out, certainly not for us. And so we knew very early on that if we were going to manifest in the way that we wanted to, we needed to throw ourselves into the arena on Amazon early, and we forged an amazing partnership there. And by doing that early, we also asked ourselves, how do you get to scale on Amazon? How do you build a big presence? And so we put in place a number of initiatives in the back end that allowed us to supercharge the brand, and we became the best-selling men's grooming brand inside of the first three months that we launched and had about five or 6,000 five-star reviews inside of the first year. And we even got to headline Prime Day with the late Kobe Bryant and launched a new deodorant fragrance that became the number one bestseller on Amazon in that first year. And in tandem and concurrently, again, we were keeping our optics and our minds open to the retail landscape. We weren't going to rush it, but we started to become educated on the process and we committed a significant amount of time and resources to understanding it. And then when we decided to go after it, we went after it in the biggest way possible with the largest partnership of its kind with Target. And we launched exclusively with Target. We launched 14 products and we launched nationally full chain at 1600 locations with a huge amount of uh, trade and marketing and PR support. And it's been a really interesting journey and that we did that in our second year. So it's been a very quick and rapid succession to manifest the omnichannel uh, presence and that distribution strategy. And that mirrors the appetite and, and really the mission that I outlined at the very start of our conversation, which was to elevate the whole category and bring these products to the masses. And you can only do that when you're really fully cognizant of the, of the distribution requirements necessary to achieve that objective. So that's kind of in a, in a verbose nutshell how we approached it. And so now we're really seeing that bear fruit as an omni-channel player where people can discover us either at Target or they can discover us online. 
And then they can cross purchase across the platforms that are maybe more, they're more habitualized and more familiar with as they become more and more familiar with the brand. And, and we provide lots of different ways to consume the product that mirrors that, you know, becoming faithful and loyal to, to our products and our brand mission. Wow. I really appreciate that. I mean, you touched on a number of really interesting points, one of which is that when you thought about your strategy from very early on, you were thinking a lot about retail, about eventually going into retail. And you know, not every DNVB thinks about retail from the get-go. And I was wondering about how are you able to build a story and construct a brand that retailers wanted in your approach to a omni-channel strategy? Yeah. So- just to add to your question, not all categories and not all products require you to do that. You know, you, your channel strategy is very contingent on the product and the pricing and the consumer demographic that you're going after and the total sort of addressable market. And not only that, but the timeline and the cadence that, you know, at the rate that you decide to do that, you know, depending on if you're bootstrapped or, or funded from by VCs, will also be highly contingent and relevant specifically to the product that you're doing. So in some instances, if I take Casper, you know, I won't pontificate too much about them, but very high price point item, you know, uh, underpenetrated, undersaturated social channels, cool brand, fresh, you know, a lot of consumers not wanting to go to mattress stores anymore, great convergence of trends happening. And then that could be, you know, a very aggressively funded with venture capital to scale rapidly. And then the question becomes, okay, now what? And that's where problems kick in. But there were no problems for a, a good runway there where they managed to build an incredibly valuable business and a very exciting, disruptive player. And now they did also launch at Target and they then had an extension of Casper brought to life at Target, which was also very successful. But that came, I think, probably five or six years down the trail. And every brand has its own sequence of those activities. So I, I, you know, it's important for me to sort of caveat what we just talked about with those nuances. There's no one size fits all, but the key is to understand the game that you're in and understand the way that consumers best, best shop your business and your, and your products. And in the case of, you know, going to your question about retailers, retailers, you have to understand if you think about it at a 10,000 foot view, retailers are challenged, of course, by the dynamism of online platforms. So, you know, Amazon has the luxury of having three, four, five, six, seven million SKUs. And at any given point in time, there's no barrier really to entry. More products can flood into the space and they live or die based on popularity. So there isn't a buyer necessarily at Amazon having to curate the landscape because that's not what it is. It's a, it's a marketplace. In, in, in retail, it's very different. These are curated experiences. You know, the buyers have, you know, only so much self-space to work with. They obviously have booming digital platforms, which is super exciting for their future, but they also want to offer their consumers the best of the best, and they want to introduce them the best of the new. And so that is a really interesting reality that, that the physics there are different. And so the question from the buyer in a day and age where there's so much competition is what is it that you're bringing to the party? What are you going to bring to this? Because I'll give you the opportunity for the stage, but what is it that you have to offer? Now, number one, the biggest one I think is, again, is authenticity. I really believe in that. I think that there are 
I think it's a word that's thrown around a lot out there. And every influencer will say, I'm, I'm really authentic, I'm really authentic. But you know, I think that's a diluted word in many respects. But for us, it's very important and it's very true that the company is built by and designed for athletes. And we have athlete equity partners and we have athletes who are informing everything we do. And from day one, Kobe was a co-founder in the business and he's very involved. And so we authentically serve the athlete community and we're very active as a result in a lot of community building and a lot of grassroots efforts across the country. So, so that was a number one. It was, it was we can authentically position ourselves to your audience in this way. And the other aspect of sport, which is obviously very beautiful, is that it's inspiring to everyone. Everyone wants to lead active lifestyles. Everyone from the age of 12 all the way up to 65, 70 wants to live their best life. And a big part of that equation is a healthy life, is a, is a, is a life dedicated to, to becoming better and being physically active in some way, shape or form. And so as a result, sport is a language that people connect with and they understand. But also you have incredibly dedicated and loyal fans to certain sports, whether it's baseball or football or basketball or what have you. And so sport as a cultural platform is something that's hyper-connected, highly networked, highly excited, and throughout the year, at any given point in time, take Corona out of the picture. It's a very vibrant, dynamic community. So that's an amazing thing to talk about. You have upwards of 50 or 60 million Americans in the country who are actively involved in team sports. You have about 120 or 130 million Americans who consider themselves active. And so the question then from their perspective is actually more a case of, well, why isn't there an authentic player doing this? So if you can get to that point in the conversation, you know, you have a lot of opportunity at that juncture to sort of, you know, connect philosophically around the value that you're going to offer via their platforms. From there, it goes into a world of tell us about the products and why they're better. And no one is doing clean, high-performance product. Then the next question is, well, is this going to be affordable for the average consumer? Because we have hundreds of millions of people coming through our doors every week. So if you're going to charge this at a premium, it's going to neglect a very large percentage of our customer base. And again, our philosophy is, again, authentically connected back to the consumer in that we want every athlete, every person with a body to experience and enjoy our products. And the only way we can do that is if we extend our value. And every time we grow, we extend more value to consumers. We just move from $8.99 to $6.99 across our full product range because we want consumers to be able to have a superior product at an affordable price where they don't have any buyer's remorse for they're buying these basics on a daily basis. So all of these things add up. And then finally, the thing I'll add is we were very conscious about having athletes in our community. We launched with seven remarkable athletes, James Harden from um, the Rockets, uh, Juju Smith-Schuster from the Steelers, who has upwards of a million YouTube followers, Kobe Bryant, obviously a co-founder. Uh, we had Ryan Sheckler, who's a skateboarding legend, Ken Roxon, who's a motocross world champion. We had Sage Erickson, who's a U.S. surf champion. And we had Javi Baez, who's a World Series champion baseball player for the Chicago Cubs. And collectively, those athletes had, they represented the athlete community of the country, highly diverse ethnic group, different genders, different stages of their careers. They really mirror the athletic community in the, in the United States, but they also have 70 million followers across social channels. And for us, that was a very valuable thing that we could offer as part of our dialogue with Target to say, here's how we're going to bring awareness to the product range and our partnership. So there are a lot of ways to build toward that relationship. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. They're incredibly sophisticated. They've been doing this forever and they're the best in the game. So really you have to come with 
something that's very clearly baked, very smart, aligns with their marketing calendars and fits beautifully into their assortment. And if all those things come together, then you have big partnerships in the way that we've constructed with Target where you know they have 14 amazing products across the country and they get a first look at a lot of our, our innovation and our, our research. So that's a long way of describing your question. But again, it, it, without those details, I think it would be to the detriment of people listening who think it, it, you know, it's as easy as you know, doing these one, two, three things to, to get in the door and have a successful relationship. That's really helpful. I really appreciate you taking us there from the very beginning and how you thought about launching and structuring your business. Also, you know, really sorry as well for your loss of Kobe. I mean, he was a loss for all of us, for sure, around the world globally. But I know that you obviously work with him closely. Artist Porton actually knew him. But how do you decide or seek who should actually partner with you on the athlete front? Yep. We started with Kobe because Kobe was a le- is a legend. Uh, he is a legend still, even more so since he's passed. And having somebody who's a co-founder in the business who had upwards of 20 years experience building a sports brand that was culturally exciting with Nike isn't is in a, of itself amazing. The fact that he was also one of the greatest athletes of all time and willed himself to that position through just sheer determination and focus was something that, of course, is that unbelievable pairing that I can't think of too many folks in the world that that had that experience and, and have that passion for what they did. And then the third piece, of course, was his activism and his involvement with the athletic community and in particular also young women through his daughters and their sport. And so his role as a mentor, his role as a coach was starting to come online in a really big way. And, and so we felt that as a co-founder with us, with Brian and I, would be an incredibly valuable uh, partner. From there, we said to ourselves, again, we need to have this athletic community of of athletes in our business represent the country. It can't just be one athlete who, you know, plays golf or just one athlete who's, I don't know, a soccer player. We need to have a cross section of the country because that's who our customers are. And also we are firm believers in having multiple and diverse opinions at the table. So when we went out to the world, we looked at the different sports that we felt really connected with the brand. Of course, basketball being a big central pillar but we also complemented that with football and with baseball. These are team sports, most popular three in the country. And then what we wanted to do was make sure we also had the voices of athletes from action sports, sports that might not necessarily command all the TV airtime, but are have thriving communities online and have really dedicated followers. And so motocross is an incredible sport. I would say they're some of the big greatest athletes in the world because they have to wield that four or 500 pound bike around the track. Then we had skateboarding, which of course has a vibrant culture, rich history, an amazing attitude. We also then added surf because we felt having someone who was literally performing their craft out in the elements like that was also particularly compelling. And Sage was our first female athlete. We just launched our partnership with uh, Abby Dahlkemper who's a World Cup champion soccer player. And that's how we started. And we had the Latino, we had African-American, we had white voices at the table. And again, we had young folks. Juju Smith had just been drafted in the Steelers, a big e-gamer. We had you know folks who at the top of their careers, James Harden, he's, he's going to have an amazing year next year, wherever he ends up. Of course, Kobe overseeing that. And so 
that architecture provided uh, an amazing perspective for us. They were all committed to helping us with the product. So they were all in a headspace where they said, we want to help build this company, which is rare. And then lastly, every single one of them had something culturally very rich and vibrant about themselves. James Harden, you know, he's a standout character in the NBA. People recognize him. He's got a fantastic personality great sense of humor. And he plays with a certain swagger that I think is very unique. And the same can be said about Juju Smith-Schuster, who is a content machine. He produces incredibly compelling content, partners with TikTok influencers, live streams himself playing Fortnite with Drake and Travis Scott. And we wanted the athlete to be fully represented as modern, as different, as culturally diverse and exciting and fun so that we weren't just painting a two-dimensional picture of the athlete. And that's why we chose them specifically. So Again, long answer, but there was a very clear and considered checklist. And we're very excited to have every one of them contribute in the way that they have toward, toward launching the brand and building the brand so far. That's really helpful. I think it's fair to say that at least my takeaway when you're describing how you think about partnerships and which type of athletes that you you know want to get involved with your business, it's more so that they are also seen as more than their sport right? You talk about Juju Mixuster and also building a lot of content online as well as having other interests and he's, you know, personality and well-known in other fields as well besides football, right? So I think having that well-roundedness, would you say is something that you look for? A hundred percent. We fundamentally believe that that is a reflection of us as, as humans. Uh, no one is just myopically and obsessively focused on just one thing, maybe us with deodorant. But, but overall, I would say that that is a good representation of humanity. And the other thing that I think is an, a very important sort of bigger brand consideration is that these folks are dreamers and they dare to be themselves. And they don't necessarily care if they're embraced or not. They are who they are. They love who they are. And they're going to do the things that excite them and appeal to them. And I think that they are muses for the brand in that respect, because we are about inclusivity. We're about elevating people to pursue their destiny and, and whatever it is, and whatever it is they're passionate about and whatever it is they want to go after in life. And so that that is a brand tenant. It's a brand message. Uh, and, and they echo that and they live that. So the way that we, we think about it is we're not defined by necessarily the athletes that are endorsing our brand and our products. You know, we have a community of athletes. We are always signing new and exciting athletes. And so that's not to say that we do that because there's only so much staying power. It's just because that's the nature of sport. There's always going to be folks playing sports and sort of emerging as new talents and exciting talents. So, you know, if you look at Nike or Adidas, they've done that incredibly well. They, they haven't necessarily been singularly defined by a single athlete ever. And so that, you know, the brand needs to stand on its own and that we're committed to making sure that the mission that we have is clear and resonant and timeless and that we work with amazing folks who embody those values. And then secondly, the thing I would say that's, that's new and interesting is I think with the advent or with the, with the emergence of social and social influencers and, and, and folks folks being probably more interested in the lives of people that aren't celebrities more than more than ever. I mean, if you rewind it 50, 60 years, we were kind of obsessed maybe with a very small group of people who had achieved international renown somehow. I think now there's a huge appetite to, to discover new people who are just doing their thing. And, and, you know, TikTok's all about that. It celebrates people doing, you know, new, weird, fun stuff. But that's the truism of social in general, particularly the IG, Snapchat, and TikToks of this world. And so to that end, uh, you know, our activation and our work in the grassroots community with athletes who might not be household names, but who are doing great 
great stuff and have smaller audiences. That I think is also a, a big part of how we affiliate with the athletic community. So we have the sort of pyramid, we have the stars, we have the folks on their way there. We also have you know, a wide range of different athletes across different sports, but then we also are very, very active in that grassroots community and celebrating athletes you might have never heard of because we believe that the sum of all the parts is significantly greater than any of the individuals. And I think that that's, you know, again, akin to what we've seen from great brands that have done that over time, like Nike and Adidas. No, that's really helpful. I love that. You're not only thinking about the great athletes of the world or, or even the folks that are up and coming, but also the folks that are just doing different things or are just have their own audience base and are influencers by themselves without, you know, being in a league or anything like that. So I want to also talk a little bit about how you think about capital efficiency. I know this is a bit of a left turn here, but I know in our previous conversation, we talked about we've seen the past few years that, you know, companies have really optimized for growth. And especially when, as it relates to the D2C channel, you have those early arbitrage opportunities, marketing opportunities on Google and Facebook that you had in uh, the late 2000s and early 2010s that you no longer have since your marketing costs are, are much more expensive. But I'd love to know just how you think about building a brand today and the constant battle between growth versus profitability. A hundred percent. And that's a really big question that we probably need to record a whole separate episode for because it's a it's a fascinating topic. And it's one that, you know, there are truisms and there are, you know, unique approaches and then those are always changing. So the best we can do is to remain dynamic. And so, you know, the only rule is that there are no rules. And so uh, there's an element of that at play here. But, you know, I think in general, the way that I view these things, depending on the category, again, is with a certain degree of conservatism that underpins kind of bold, big ideas. And so uh, this could be my Achilles heel in that, you know, I'm a skeptic until I'm a believer. And so I think that that plays a central role in probably defining how we think about capital efficiencies and return on investment. So, you know, we built a brand, we built a business that was very tooled for very rapid growth and big growth with amazing partners. And so we made an effort to build the rocket ship in tandem with that opportunity. But we also ensured that we could very quickly and very nimbly throttle things up and down across the organization as reality started to hit. And I think that just using that metaphor a little bit more, the all or nothing approach is one that's a very dangerous one, particularly if you flirt with venture capital. And that all or nothing approach You've seen rocket ships emerge, but you also have a 90% failure rate for a lot of others that are too quick to start, too quick to sort of rush out of the gate, hire up too many people, throw money at marketing, hoping, hoping it will work. And then, you know, in some cases, it takes two or three years for those numbers to catch up with you where you then realize, actually, we don't have a business here. So, so all of the cautionary tales I have lived with over the course of my four previous ventures, I think informed a lot of direction at Art of Sport. And our goal has been to make use of different channels in different ways with different criteria against each of the channels. We also have different criteria underpinning each of our retailer partners. And so we won't just arbitrarily go to every single retailer in the future because we're excited to get our product out to the world. Uh, we're, we're very conservative and pragmatic about the types of partnerships we seek in retail 
that we feel will will allow us to pursue our mission in an uncompromised fashion where we're just losing money hand over fist and we're completely reliant on venture capital to keep the business afloat. And I think that is the, that's the nature of the game going forward. I think people are more educated, but you have to be in a position to accelerate as well. I've talked a lot about controls and levers and pulling back when things aren't quite the way that you want them and stringent controls around driving toward profitability and so on. But you also have to continue despite that, that effort to be balanced and think about ways that you can, in fact, throttle forward aggressively and very hard when you see signs of life. And I think those nuances with the right board and with the right leadership teams, that, that can work very well. And, and we're incredibly fortunate to have those partners in the business who understand that nuance. It's cases where there's misalignment and a misunderstanding the size of the prize or the speed that the prize can be reached where you then start to see the rocket ships fall apart. And so that doesn't answer specifically in detail around our spending patterns and what we invest in and what we don't. But hopefully that's enough criteria for your listeners to sort of gauge what the control room looks like and, you know, sort of, I think, what a good control room looks like versus a bad one. Yeah, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Just how you really are approaching growth, but also at the same time being extremely mindful about capital efficiency, even though you've raised you know, venture capital. Because I know that, especially with consumer goods, you have... I was actually just talking about this with an investor earlier, how investing in like software companies is different to investing in consumer businesses. And, you know, you have to be a lot more mindful in terms of capital efficiency in consumer businesses because it's not a binary outcome. Yeah, that's true. I think there's nuance there as well. So every category has its own natural ceilings. And I wouldn't say natural ceilings, I would say just sort of chapters. And sometimes the transition from one chapter to the next is quite brutal and quite precarious and comes with further limitations on the optionalities for the outcome. So for instance, you know, if you're doing 20 or 30 million in revenue and there's a tremendous amount of runway left for you, then that will bear bear fruit in the way of potential premiums that an acquirer might apply when they look at your business. And so then the question becomes, is it worth additional risk or are we better off partnering with an acquirer who can take us to that next level and avoid this all or nothing thesis from driving us to do do things that are irrational. But then there's also certain categories where, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 million or 80 or 90 million is table stakes because the average cost is larger, because the consumption behaviors are, are different, because, you know, the, the velocity on, on shelves is different or online, you know, the cost of acquisition is low because maybe you're a mark, first market entrant. So a lot of these things play into the definition of when the chapters happen and what the chapters are. And at each of those steps, then the question becomes, what are the options that remain on the table for us as we decide to go from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three? And I think that's where in the early chapters, you do have potential for binary outcomes. So that is there. There are 10x returns that are very possible for early stage investors within the CPG categories. Software very different, but it's once you get to a point where you are now available at every single retailer, your cost of acquisition is going up and up and up. Uh, those numbers maybe don't look as good as you wish they did. You're sort of having to think about product extensions. You're having to think about internationalizing the business. That's where you know all the capital efficiency, you know, they start to slow down. That's where you start to see problems with your product assortments and write-offs. That's when you start to see your marketing budget stretch too thin and the growth growth slowing. And that's when you start to have real problems with outcomes and the potential outcomes within those spaces. So 
So I wouldn't write off CPG as one where there are no binary outcomes. It's just a question of stages and chapters and understanding the, when those happen based on the addressable market. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a really great point about how you shouldn't also just bulk all of CPG into as there's not one definitive right answer. It's uh, category dependent as well as just different stages. I like how you said chapters too. That was helpful. I can't let you get out of here until we talk about your fundraising strategy since this is a venture capital podcast. And so I'd love to know how you thought about raising capital in the early days. Yeah. So I've been in businesses where I've bootstrapped it myself or where I've raised, you know, very small sums of capital to prove out various ideas and so on. And one thing I've learned is that certain ideas, when they're, when they're valid, particularly when their goal is to drive to volume, they require the correct financing. And I've seen a lot of businesses that have a lot of potential where they just raised way too little. And, you know, I also have an aversion to raising too much. So that's coming from somebody who is a cynic when I think about, you know, what is the ultimate type of business to build? In my mind, it's a business where you own the whole thing and you grow it profitably. Like that is the North Star. That is the best possible business you can build, I believe. But that's not to take away from businesses that raise billions of dollars and they exit. And it's spectacularly. I I think those are a lot of fun too. But I I just want to make clear, like the, the goal is not to raise a ton the money. I think that is something that is a, a passe concept. When you can get it because your business is going in the right way, then great, go for it and do it. But I don't think that is a definition as a rule. It's any is by any means a barometer for success. So with that, I, I would say, you know, that cynical approach was applied to art of sport. And Brian and I you know, we we thought long and hard about, you know, if we're going to engage with athletes of this caliber, if we're going to try and disrupt this aisle, if we're going to look to big partnerships like the one at Target, then we're going to have to be in a position to fund it. And we're not going to be in a position to slow roll this or bootstrap this ourselves. And so we also knew that the category needed to have a market leader it needed to have a brand that was of the next generation. And investors were, of course, very keen uh, to have a good operating team, but also one where there was an opportunity to shake up the category and be a disruptor. So we had the potential, we had the luxury, I think, of thinking about, okay, how much capital are we going to need here? We were incredibly lean for the first six or seven months where it was essentially you know, a small team of two or three people where we were developing the formulas and developing the product range and developing the brand message and the story and so on. And as we started to see how big and dramatic this could be, if executed correctly, that's what determined you know, a lot of the business model and ultimately a lot of the investment that would be made. So that's how we worked our way back into the ultimate amount of money that we decided to, to launch with. And we were also cognizant that per my point about omnichannel, we wanted to be in a position to experiment. We wanted to be in a position to learn. And we also wanted to be in a position to throttle up, per my previous point, if we saw a pulse without having to necessarily run back to the well and try and raise more capital. So those were a lot of the key kind of deciding factors when we, when we thought about it. And then once we got into business, again, my, my philosophy about how to build a business and how to do that in a, in a healthy way will put us in a position where we're, we're not going to be reliant on venture capital for, for the continued extreme growth that we're about to see. So, you know, I can I can probably say this now, but, you know, we are going to probably 8 to 10x our, our retail footprint next year. We're going to be launching a bunch of new products and categories that I'm incredibly excited about. And we'll continue to be the fastest growing brand in the, in the country in men's grooming. And, you know, we're not necessarily having to do that by raising a monster round of money just because we have to. And to my point about your previous question, really about, you know, how do you think about outcomes? 
items and how do you think you know, within the CPG category? Again, that's where the challenges with the category come in because if you start to raise too much because you're not running a smart business, that's when you know the optionality that you have at the end of all of this, if you do decide to sell, that's when things become problematic because now you've raised money in a way that that doesn't conform with the potential exit outcomes for the business. And so that also plays into it. And that's my point about early stage investors in a business and the potential returns they can get in the CPG space versus later. And that's when you want to make sure that you're very clear about the chapters and the physics that are governing what you're doing. That's excellent. I really appreciate you kind of painting a picture about how you think about fundraising and really making sure that on one hand, and I guess that this is part of the balance, right? You want to build a massive business and you think that there's a real opportunity there, which it seems like from already what you've done, I mean, my word, there certainly is a business there. And especially, I mean, that's great in terms of the eight to 10 X. So at the same time, knowing early on that you needed to arrange capital because of the size of business that you wanted to create. But on the other end of the spectrum, making sure you don't over fundraise and raise too much capital, as we've seen with other companies, then the exits become difficult to maneuver, to say the least. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? That's a good question. I mean, there are two that do stand out and for different reasons. You know, I'm not a big subscriber to self-help books. I don't really look for answers in those books and maybe I'm missing something, but, you know, I prefer to try and find the answers by application and by doing. And so, you know, two books that were particularly interesting to me and one where I have a lot of post-it notes in it and I'm sure that they're elementary observations now if I go over it but was a book written by a uh, former journalist early in the 20th century his name is Arthur Kustler and the book is called Arrow in the Blue and so much of why I love the book is because as a journalist he traveled all over the world and mirrors a lot of I think some of the experiences that I saw and had to make sense of in life. And he was someone who saw a lot of change in his lifetime, obviously, you know, early 20th century through the you know, uh, first and second world wars and the emergence of some very big ideas in the political spectrum, but also on the social spectrum where he was taking stock of those philosophies and took the good and the bad from them. And I think that there were some very compelling uh, perspectives for somebody who wasn't entrenched in their worldview and was amenable to change and was taking lessons wherever he could find them. And he was a bit of an adventurer and a bit of a badass. So that's sort of that's probably why it appealed to me on a personal level was because it was inspiring to just see people being able to live varied lives and adapt their way of thinking on a constant basis. And so that was the personal answer, Arthur Kistler's Arrow in the Blue. And then on a professional level, there's a book by H.W. Uh, Brands called American Colossus and somewhat contentiously titled The Triumph of Capitalism from uh, 1865 until 1900. And what was so compelling there from a professional level were was narrowing in on the early emergence of capitalism, a few of some of the key kind of players in the game that, you know, in our day, it's the Elon Musks of this world, but that that was who they were in, in that early era in a real frontier town. And also having to design the systems that enabled them to build these giants. For the first time, there was no playbook. There were no set standards of how you do things. There weren't software tools you could use for free. These guys had to, you know, and gals to a lesser extent, but in the book, it's primarily men because of that era, had to figure this shit out all by themselves. And that was 
professionally very exciting. And, and it was, you know, using the tools and the mediums that they had, which was not the information age, but it was the industrial age and making things and forging things and serving the world through that infrastructure was something that I think on a professional level was, was so exciting to see. And there was one particular section, if I remember correctly, describing Vanderbilt, who would tour his factory floors every day religiously at the age of, I think, in his 70s. And he would obsess about you know, the smallest, most mundane seeming detail happening on the factory floor. And he would come up with a solve for it. It was literally moving a pot from one side of the cauldron, you know, moving a cauldron from one place to another. And he would solve it in his spare time. And over the course of his career, he had made all of those tiny little impacts to afford him a business that could undercut everybody in the game because everything had been so finely optimized and finely tuned and brilliantly thrown out. And I think professionally that just resonates with me as everything matters and everything in a business should matter. And certainly the humility that allowed him to go into the business and dig around and tool around in, in his factories to find those problems is, is sort of emblematic of a student of life. And I hope to carry myself in a similar way, you know, other <laughs> than the outcomes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing both those books book sounds really fascinating and uh, really also very, very happy. I mean, you're very original. No one else previously has mentioned either of these books. So excited to add these to the book list. But I mean, I'm going to have to add these to my personal book list because these both sound really interesting in their own ways. And I really love the Vanderbilt example about how everything matters. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I've said this before. The best piece of advice that I've received is from my parents who said that I should just get a safe job. And they were both remarkable people who did amazing things in their careers. But they were, my father was a post-World War II generation child born in 1935 in Europe. So he saw some pretty horrible things and grew up with a mindset that was just very different from what we're living now. And so I think being told to just get a steady job is probably the reason I'm, I'm not doing that. And also they gave me a computer early on in my age, which allowed me to do a lot of dreaming. So I think it was the combination of those two elements, one that was hugely enabling for me and, and sort of identity defining. And then one that was almost a challenge, sort of what can you do with this thing and prove to us that there's something more there than, I don't know, in the diplomatic service or as a lawyer. And so, so that's, uh, that's the advice. I think that's really spurred me on. I love that. That is awesome. And I'm sure, and I'm sure, you know, also maybe uh, put a bit of a chip on your shoulder too. Oh, massive. Yeah. Yeah. The worst, the worst kind of biggest chip. <laughs> exactly. Well, Matthias, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm sorry if it's just word salad. My head of marketing always tells me to just fucking get to the point and talk about art of sport. And I always end up, I, I, I'm a sort of a student of things. And so I'm just fascinated by the context, not so much the answer. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having on Matthias and having him share his story about art of sport. He hasn't posted in a while, but I'd recommend following him on Twitter at mmetternek and check out artofsport.com. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VC or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.